Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, featuring fresh and lively commentary on all things Primal, including Q&A sessions with Primal Blueprint founder, Mark Sisson, special guest interviews hosted by Mark Sisson, and conversations with Primal Blueprint authors and other health and fitness experts. The show is presented by Damage Control, Master Formula, the world's most potent multivitamin, mineral, antioxidant, anti-aging supplement. Available at primalblueprint.com. Past episodes are available for download or to review written summaries at blog.primalblueprint.com. And now, here's your host, Brad Kearns. Welcome, listeners. It's your host, Brad Kearns. So exciting to have back, keeping our promise that we're going to have a regular occurring episode with Dr. Kate or the Ask Dr. Kate show. How you doing, Kate? I'm doing really good, Brad. Thanks. So Kate Shanahan, Primal Advantage. We had the exciting launch of this program earlier in the summer. This is 2014. Um, and we talked uh, a good bit last time about what the offering is all about, what the one-on-one metabolic consulting program is all about. So listeners that didn't hear that, go back and uh, check out that podcast because it's a wonderful service where you're looking at blood work, you're looking at dietary analysis and having that wonderful 90-minute consultation. No more getting ushered out of the exam room for the next patient, huh? Yeah, I love having that luxury of time where I just, I don't feel like the, the uh, Edgar Allan Poe, you know, with the <laughs> big thing hanging over my head going tick-tock, tick-tock. It's, uh, it's really nice to be able to make sure everybody's got all their questions answered. Well, we were talking about the program design early on, and um, I thought, so let's see, what do you, what do we need? Like forty five minutes? And you're like, oh no, no, we need ninety. I'm like ninety. What? Are you, how are you going to talk about yourself for ninety minutes with a doctor? But um, <laughs> it plays out that people indeed have all kinds of questions and and conversation required, huh? Yeah, in order for me to really be able to get a good handle on what's going on, what their issues are, go over their lab tests, explain to them what that all means and to like their, you know, a satisfactory level of understanding um, and and then come up with a, you know, actually we go over their food diary as well and then come up with a plan to, uh, you know, get them closer to their goals. Uh, we ha- just, it takes, it takes a while. Yeah, there's, uh, it's, it's, the, it's like the perfect amount of time though, because, you know, most Folks can't really handle that any more information. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, well, I know it, in you know it would for me because I'm like particular, and I'd be talking to you about my toenail that just came off and the the best way to get that going, and then my oh by the way my finger, you know. But um, I know you covered the big <laughs> picture of that metabolic snapshot where we didn't talk too much about that. But tell me about this. It's sort of a custom designed algorithm uh, calculation, right? Yeah, well, the idea is to evaluate how exactly a person's diet has so far affected their health. And, you know, so we all have um, different ways in which a a suboptimal diet is going to manifest. It has to do with our genetics and uh, genetic momentum and um, epigenetics and all this stuff. So while it's tough to predict exactly what a bad diet is going to do to a person, it's definitely going to do something. So some folks have weight gain. Some folks will develop um, autoimmune problems. Some folks will develop connective tissue problems. So we evaluate 
six body systems um, and figure out which one of those is the most affected. And it's based on a complex questionnaire that they that they fill out. That's uh, it takes some time to consider all the the answers and give me, uh, you know, all the information I need, which I look over before the consultation. And then it also integrates, integrates the uh, lab test results so that it kind of spits out a couple of gauges where you can see what has happened with your metabolism, what body system is in the best shape and what body system is in the worst shape. And then we can, the idea of doing that was to make it real easy to see improvement other than on the scale, right? That's, you know, that's one great thing. Um, but they don't need, people don't need my help with evaluating their weight going down. They just need the help of a scale. So we've got these other things which evaluate their hormone system, their energy system, their immune system, connective tissue, neurologic system, and cardiovascular system. Those are the six body systems that are generally affected, um, you know, in, in, in just about everyone who is needing to recover from the standard American diet, conventional wisdom kind of diet. Uh, yeah, you mentioned genetics there uh, earlier, and I, it reminds me of the podcast that Mark and I just did, which would be last week's podcast in the in the lineup. And he said, you know, when we reference these genetic predispositions or our our inheritances, like we have a predisposition for obesity, it runs in the family, or arthritis, or whatever. And Mark pointed out that. We're not talking about these things that are going back generation after generation back to the Mayflower that all my all the Kearns family were uh, fat and had achy joints. Mark's saying this is more likely just going back one generation, perhaps, and the you know the adverse dietary practices that your parents had, and then from your own upbringing from uh, infancy to adulthood. Where things really start to fall apart is somewhere or around uh, 1950, because at that point in time, so however many generations back that is for you, right? So for me, it's like my parents. Um, but uh, since I'm old, there's like a lot of people now that would be their great grandparents. <laughs> but um, so yeah, what happened at that point in time was we, we, we made a historic leap away from uh, food that in any way resembles what, you know, human beings used to eat, you know, not just changing the macronutrient ratios of actual food, but changing the chemical nature of the food itself. So that's about the time point where if there's something going on in your family, uh, that's where usually where it came from. So you're absolutely right. You don't have to go back to the Mayflower. You can go back within you know, recorded history pretty easily, look at photographs, talk to people. But, um, it, you know, so many things happened. The women were encouraged not to breastfeed. The formula um, was just horrible. They didn't even know about things like essential fatty acids. So there was absolutely nothing in there along the lines of omega-3 fatty acids or omega-6. Um, the, the, uh, introduction of all kinds of vegetable oils and chemicals, uh, began at that point in time. And of course it's just accelerated. So, um, it, it is something that you don't have to, you know, really wonder <laughs> too much about because you can just ask your, your family members, you know, what did they, what did they do? And I find that most folks who grew up on a farm and who avoided all that sort of uh, modern intervention, uh, better living through chemistry kind of uh, changes that were occurring in the middle of the last century, they're in so much better shape. Um, and, you know, it, it's a lot of folks are kind of like, well, what do I do about that? 
how can I, you know, go, I can't go back in time and fix my family history. And uh, that's absolutely true. You can't, but at least you can understand that a lot of what is happening in your body, you can, you, we can kind of what we do is we sort out uh, what is it that you can't do anything about and what is it that you can. That's one of the things that we do in the um, Primal Advantage consultations. So it's, it's still, it's always useful. So we plunged off the cliff in 1950, bummer on that note. And <laughs> I even recall, we were just talking about this the other day with some of my childhood friends and back in the late 70s, when I was 12 years old, I did the McDonald's bike ride for charity and performed a phenomenal athletic feat of riding 78 miles in one day on the wow. route where there was uh, six McDonald's on each 26-mile <laughs> uh, circuit. And I did it three times. And every time you reached your second McDonald's in the order, you got a coupon for a free hamburger and a Coke. So I lived like a king for many months after that uh, amazing ride stuffing my face with all that horrible food so it was not only a wash it was probably I was probably was probably worse off for doing the the charity bike ride <laughs> uh, actually at that point in time the fries at least were were not made with vegetable oil they were actually using uh, a, a mixture of tallow and I think sesame oil or something like that. It was it was really based more for getting flavor. They had not been yet influenced by the um, fear of saturated fat. But it did happen shortly after that, though, where they, they got rid of the natural fats that they were using for their fries and started using all the hydrogenated horrible stuff that they're still using. Oh, so you're saying I landed in the sweet spot because this is after 1950 and before the... Uh the, the oils came into McDonald's. Awesome. Into I'm, McDonald's, I'm heartwarmed yeah. <laughs> now. Um, I remember also in your book, um, Deep Nutrition, you mentioned how the amazing insights you obtained when you were working as a physician in rural Kauai and, and saw the exceptional health of the natives uh, having that traditional ancestral diet. Yeah, it was really kind of uh, uh, in a schizophrenic mindset when I first got there because on the one hand, I had been educated along the regular mainstream that, you know, family history is what it is. There's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do about most of these chronic diseases that come along later in life. It's just part of getting old. Um, And then a feeling of like that that was kind of depressing, Um, you know, that my job was basically just to corral folks into my office and hand out different uh, prescriptions and make sure they kept coming back to monitor their blood pressure and all these other things we had to monitor forever and ever. And, um, and, you know, feeling that there was, it was like unsatisfying and knowing that there must be some cause. Like when I went to college, I had all kinds of shin splint problems. That was like my main, I had a lot of injuries, but that was like my main one. And I remember asking my uh, sports medicine physician at the time, you know, isn't there some way you can just take like a biopsy of my shin and grind it up and analyze it and tell me what's wrong? And he was like, he was like, he just ignored that. It was <laughs> so far from reality. But, you know, my, my, the drive for most of us is to try to understand a cause, but we, we don't, we're not just, we're not given those tools, unfortunately, in medical school. So, but that was still in my DNA, so to speak, to want to do that. And so when I started making the observation that these folks in Hawaii were so healthy and they were aging so well, their, even their, their skin wasn't wrinkly, um, people in their late 50s were able to do really heavy work and, you know, cutting cane in the fields, uh, the sugar cane, 
that's hard work. You're standing up for hours and hours. It it's like you know it goes beyond the eight hour day. And um, you know there were, there were guys who were in their late sixties, and it was just it's what they'd done their entire lives. Wow, and, devoting their lives to uh, cutting down sugar so the mainlanders can get fat. <laughs> yeah, right. But so, but they were in great shape. You know, at least someone's healthy from the uh, sugar addiction of modern society. <laughs> right. So, uh, so anyway, though, like, I, I, it really didn't occur to me to to investigate that until I started noticing that they ate really differently. They were cooking uh, stuff that they had hunted and fished. They had grown. Their food looked really different. It was full of all kinds of parts, body parts that we don't see in a grocery store. Or um, um, like hooves and stuff. Oh, yeah, animal um, body parts. I yeah, see. Yeah, okay, animal great, body parts. Great. That's right, yes. <laughs> Strictly non uh, you know, carnivorous, or I mean, non-cannibalistic on, on our island of Hawaii. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it wasn't until actually that I got injured myself and started, um, I, uh, you know, being basically confined to my couch with nothing to do other than try to read something and educate myself um, that I actually started putting two and two together. And that was like in 2001, 2002. So, um, but when I did, I, you know, there was a lot of information out there and uh, that I had was able to run into with, the, even with the web being as primitive as it was at the time. And it, it basically revolutionized everything about the way I practice medicine. So um, it was uh, probably possibly would not have happened had I not been seriously injured and literally immobilized. But Oh, um, was it uh, – so this is, you're not talking about your college athletics. You're talking about something else that happened later, huh? Yeah, I had a problem in my knee where I – it was swelling and I was getting fevers and nobody knew what was wrong and uh, I, I couldn't walk for two years. It was horrible. So. Oh. Well, that's I was literally, you know, immobilized. So I had to do something. So I started reading about science and stuff. So um, that, and then I actually, you know, once I did that, I changed my diet, of course, too, and and got better. And now I don't have that problem at all anymore. So fantastic. Um, yeah. So oh. I, you know, I experienced the power of just improving your immune system. It was affecting my immune system. So you're answering some of my. Uh, the question that I came up with before we get to the real questions um, <laughs> with, with this past commentary here, and that is, um, you know, it's it's great for everyone in the primal paleo ancestral health world that you're an actual MD who practices and sees real people in the real world. It's you know, it's sort of a um, uh, a, a trump card for everyone to say hey, e- even real doctors agree with our crazy stuff. Um, but it actually is really. Um, an unlikely origin point for someone getting into this movement and countering conventional wisdom at every turn. Um, most of the, you know, a great many of the other leaders in our movement are people like Mark, who was a former peak performance athlete. He wasn't steeped in the traditional medical community and getting his, uh, his perspective narrowed accordingly. And then we have uh, quite a few other people who healed themselves or were science type nerds who just enjoyed the research and realized that they were onto something. So in, in your case, I'm, I'm going to ask like, you know, what has it been like 
striking this balance between these incredible revelations and discoveries that you get basically on your own with your own research and then getting up in the morning and putting on your white coat and going into the big bad machine, which is uh, Western medicine these days. The most friction comes from the field of cardiology, uh, where the cardiology of the heart specialists, where um, they are really stuck with the idea that you have to freak out if your total cholesterol value is over whatever the number du jour is. It's currently around 200. Freak out if your LDL cholesterol is either 70, 100, or 130 or higher based on various risk, risk factors. And, and you know, the end-all be-all is getting that LDL down as low as p- possible with statin drugs. That is, you know, hard because I share patients with cardiologists whose expertise I, I do need for arrhythmias and monitoring, monitoring pacemakers and, you know, they're... I need their input. I need to work with them. But on the other hand, it's just I don't want to have to get my patients caught in between what I say, which is, look, that drug is potentially hurting your body, those cholesterol pills, and um, the cardiologist who's saying, you're a ticking time bomb if you don't take this drug. And uh, so it's just a not a great place to be. And I, I think that most of the doctors that I've run into and in that are in the ancestral health movement feel the same way, you know, because it's the, that is the one place where a person's immediate decision, uh, whether they'll take that pill or not, is going to be dependent on who they trust more, the cardiologist or the primary care doctor. And we don't like making our colleagues, as doctors, we don't like making our colleagues seem like they don't know, you know, like we disagree. It's very, one of the things about medicine that I really like is that we sort of are or should be like a uniform front where we all look at the same research and you know, discuss it and make these kinds of pronouncements. Okay, well, this is what we all agree, you know, so this is the way it's going to be for the most part, right? Um, Until, you know, I always look at more research. And that happens in most fields, but in the field of cardiovascular health and arteriosclerosis in particular, they're just so heavily influenced by the drug companies that it has not progressed in the past 50 years. So they're still stuck on the idea that statin drugs um, are this miracle cure and, you know, you need to take them. And if you don't, you're you're some kind of a cowboy, you know, just some sort of uh, wild, you know, giving wild advice and stuff like this. And so, you know, it's it's one of the things that patients probably have noticed is that, you know, doctors sort of band together to try to um, – not protect each other, but to stay on the same page because it's very important. We're supposed to be like a, like a, a sort of a tribe, but with this one issue, it doesn't happen, and um, it's really distressing. <laughs> but they are starting to come around. You know, the more articles. There was just an, another article in the New York Times fairly recently about saturated fat isn't the enemy. So um, hopefully that'll change. Yes, the wheels are moving. Um, it seems to me that there's another. Uh, challenge, which is uh, people crossing over into areas where they don't really have expertise. And, and a doctor is perceived as an expert on 
just about everything when you walk in the door just because of our cultural uh, programming. Um, but in fact, they, uh, as, as a general rule, have little to no dietary training. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We, it, we're, we don't get uh, en- enough dietary training. But the real problem is that we get the wrong dietary training. Mm-hmm. You know, the standard conventional wisdom, fat is bad, salt is bad, fiber is like the only thing you should ever eat. And, um, <laughs> you know, because we get something, we think we've gotten all that there is to know. And it makes us very resistant to new ideas. Um, it, we, it would be better if our medical um, schools just said, look, we don't care here about nutrition at all. We don't think it matters. So if you have any interest in it, you're going to have to learn this on your own, but realize that you're not educated. <laughs> that would be better. But we don't realize that we're not educated. I thought I knew everything you know, when I came out of medical school because I had just come out of medical school. I paid a lot for it. And I was like, you know, of course I learned everything that mattered about nutrition. Um, it reminds me there's uh, the, one of those adages from uh, Ben Franklin or somebody in, um, in, in my own life with uh, my wife, Tracy, it applies to me and my permission to operate power tools. And I've been banned for many <laughs> years from even looking at one or plugging it in. And so, you know, the fact that I am extremely... Uh, convinced of my ignorance and incompetence in that area, I believe serves me very well than uh, passing myself off as a aficionado of construction tools and wreaking havoc on my body and my house. <laughs> <laughs> so, in other words, um, you know, it's uh, it's it's possibly irresponsible to spout off on topics that you're, um, you know, maybe not up to speed on. And now, fortunately, like you mentioned, the, the articles that are coming out and the, you know, respected scientific journals and medical uh, establishment people putting out studies, like a lot of the conclusions in the Framingham study that uh, Mark references in the Primal Blueprint, saying that uh, intake of dietary cholesterol has no effect on blood cholesterol. Yeah, there's a lot that could be changing in the near future because we are seeing just so much more with this. I think a lot of it's recently coming from the low carb movement because in um, the medical field, the specialists in metabolism and understanding how diet affects health are really the weight loss doctors. And um, they have almost all of them kind of adopted the low carb approach and that along with that, they increase the amount of fat that's naturally occurring in the food. Like, you know, they don't make you eat um, egg white omelets and stuff like this. So there's, there's no fear of butter um, among the weight loss, most of the weight loss specialists. And so um, as a medical group, that's where I go to to kind of get um, some relief from all this friction. Actually, when I um, first encountered the organization called American Society of Bariatric Physicians, it wasn't until like 2010. And I just couldn't believe there were hundreds and hundreds of doctors all in one place. The meeting was in Baltimore that, um, you know, were basically on the same page as me about the, the, the cholesterol and not being a big issue, saturated fat, not being the devil, um, cholesterol pills, not being this cure-all. So, um a lot of the articles are written by or co-written by doctors or are written by people who are peripherally in one way or the other involved in that particular organization. Oh, that's great to hear. And, and it, 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 would, it would occur to me that 
if there were any challenges to this forward momentum and this these uh, great insights that they could just parade um, success stories up there on stage at the conference and say, "Well, look, I lost two hundred pounds and I didn't eat any carbs." So um, it would it would change the thinking quickly if you had that uh, practical advice. Like I, I send people to the success stories link at Mark Stanley Apple, and it's like, "Well, if you disagree, why don't you check out this picture of Tara?" <laughs> and what else can you say? That's a really great idea. The parade, like we could do, like a, a million pound march on Washington D.C. To, to to demand changes in legislation. That's awesome, Kate. <laughs> um, so you know what I'd I'd like to do here is get a plug in for the four pillars because it's so important to you and it kind of helps the listeners understand where you're coming from. If people like to put you in. Um, you know, a box like, are you paleo? Are you primal? Are you this? And you sort of have a unique um, uh, perspective on nutrition that you framed in the Four Pillars of World Cuisine that uh, was part of the Deep Nutrition book. Um, and then, since we're uh, getting up in uh, length of our show, we'll hit you on another show, Rapid Fire, with a bunch of questions from listeners, uh, questions for the doctor about primal paleo matters. So uh, this this incredible book, Deep Nutrition, that you and Luke, your husband, wrote and uh, I guess self-published and threw it up on Amazon, the modern, the modern business model, and it sold uh, incredibly well. And the centerpiece was these four pillars. You want to describe those? So yeah, the four pillars of world cuisine are in um, order of availability, I guess. Fresh food, fermented and sprouted food, meat on the bone, and organ meats. And fresh food is just basically food that you, you know, whatever's in season and essentially unprocessed. You know, you, you eat it as is basically. So salads, um, all, all cuisines also include fresh um, animal products, whether it's uh, milk, you know, that's a very, very common one, actually. Um, unprocessed, unpasteurized, unhomogenized milk. People often have uh, like raw fish. That's a very common theme. Um, so all kinds of fresh food there. Fermented and sprouted is basically using nature to increase the nutritional value of your food that, you know, your food surpluses. So the idea of fermentation is really how, uh, getting back to how do people preserve the excess? If there is some kind of a fresh crop coming in, um, they actually didn't have refrigerators, obviously, or canning or anything like this. So they had to work with nature. That was a really only tool. So that was, uh, the reason that everywhere that we found where we studied cuisine, People had some way of using just the natural uh, microorganisms to ferment the foods and thus preserve them. So, um, you, and you get good bacteria when you do that as well as increased nutritional value. And sprouting is a similar idea. You know, before there was flour mills to make bread or use anything with grains, people had to soften them, soak them in water, and um, they would actually germinate partially. And that enhances the nutritional value and drastically reduces the content of a lot of these anti-nutrients that people are, are, you know, are right to worry about, but they're, they're not present when you process your food in this old, these old traditional natural ways. So fresh is number one and fermented and sprouted is number two on the pillars. Yes. And then number three is meat on the bone. 
And the idea there is that, you know, folks would work really hard to get these animals. You know, they weren't they just, just go roll out of bed and order, um, a, you know, a, the subway. Um, they, they had to go and hunt. And so whenever they caught something, they were going to want to use as much of it as possible, including the bones. And the, the fact that people did that and what they do when you use bone, how do you use bone? You, you basically, you boil it and you get a lot of nutrition extracted from the collagen, this, not the marrow. I mean, you also get nutrition from the marrow, but the specific special magical missing uh, food group from the American diet is the nutrients that you get from the coll- collagenous materials in skin and joint material. Um, and that actually really helps your collagen health. And so people did that you know, for thousands of generations and became dependent upon that. In other words, um, just like vitamin C, where people got a lot of vitamin C in their diet, now we need to keep getting vitamin C. This is how, you know, genetics plays a role. And the fact that your genes do change in response to the environment, we, our genes changed a long time ago to where we became dependent on vitamin C and these special molecules. Um, and then, uh, the fourth. Okay. Wait a sec. Uh, how long, does that take for our genes to become altered, to become dependent on vitamin C or collagen? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I don't know. I don't know if anyone really knows. It must take an awful long time because there's a lot of things that have to change. We have two copies of each gene. And so um, at first, what would happen is one of the one of the copies would get mutated. And then, you know, it's going to take generations before that second copy gets mutated enough to where it doesn't get produced anymore. So uh, I, I would think it would take a long time to lose a gene, right? That's what you're doing is you're losing um, something. You're, you, were, you were not needing a nutrient and uh, now you do. So um, it's different than making a gene in the first place, which probably takes even longer, um, which is why most of the genes we have are recycled from other animals. So the difference between our genetic code and uh, mouses is very surprisingly small. Most of our genes are identical, and by most, I mean something along the order of ninety something percent. So, wow, amazing! Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I, I remember uh, Mark Mark talking in the Primal Blueprint, uh, countering the people that believe we're continuing to evolve and adapt to modern foods, and he says, "I I would speculate that maybe we will adapt to a high sugar diet, and it might take." Um, 50,000 years or something, and I'm not willing to wait that long uh, to to make sugar healthy for us. So that sounds like aligned with what you're saying. Yeah, and we probably wouldn't look the same by then. You know, some of these adaptations include reduced skeletal size, um, maybe reduced number of teeth that fit in our mouth along with that. You know, we might not want that to happen, (laughs) Uh, So when you say meat on the bone, you're talking about, in effect, a much higher uh, fat consumption with your meat rather than, and this is still a prevalent notion in even the strict paleo folks say lean meats. Right. So uh, the lean question um, is coming from basically this fear of saturated fat that, you know, started in the 1950s with some flawed science done primarily by a a dude named Ansel Keys. And we talk about that in our book, Deep Nutrition. Um, But uh, the the bottom line is 
you know, if people really have to work for their food, they're not going to throw something out, especially if it tastes good, right? And the animals um, that people hunted themselves are typically somewhere between 15 and 30% body fat, depending on what time of year they were hunted. So that's a lot of fat. That's, you know, are you seriously saying that people would throw it away? I mean, come on. So they would eat it. So we've, we've, we're highly adapted to having that sort of stuff in our diet. Um, so it's a little confusing because you hear the comment that um, the ancient animals were leaner than today's modern uh, feedlot animals, and so therefore you should go looking for um, leaner cuts of meat or, or you know, minimal um, fat fat in your in your meat choices. Well, we don't have, uh, as far as I know, we don't have any way of estimating the body composition of ancient animals, but we do know that um, what they call heritage breeds of, for example, pigs. Uh, were very fatty. And so heritage breeds are breeds that date back, you know, 100 years or so um, before this fear of fat. Actually, pigs since the 1950s have been bred to be leaner because of the worries about fat and the fact that uh, the farmers didn't want to be growing animal product that was going to get cut off and wasted. So they just bred for leaner animals. But um, the, you know, the body, you can, if you're a a hunter, for example, you probably know that the amount of fat on a deer is going to vary with the time of the year, right? So sometimes when food is scarce, the animals are going to be pretty lean and their body fat might get down, you know, maybe even 10%. Um, but uh, that's still a lot of pounds of fat. But in the good times, it goes up as much as 20 or 30%. And so there is some evidence in like the Native American lore that uh, that Native Americans, at least, would prefer to hunt animals at specific times of the year so that they would be fatter and, you know, have more yummy fat <laughs> to eat and more nutrition. Because there's a lot of nutrition in the fat. We don't get vitamin K2. We don't get conjugated linoleic acid. We don't get omega-3 fatty acid from um, animal products if they don't have any fat because those things, those nutrients are stored in the fat. And they also, we don't get them if they're not um, pasture raised either, by the way. But um, so there's a lot of nutrition that we, that we need. So if you ignore, the, you have to ignore that fact, you know, to say that animals, that we used to eat lean animals and we didn't get a lot of animal animal fat. Well, then where do we get our, where do we get those nutrients from? There wasn't, a lot of folks did not have access to fish where they would be able to get omega-3 fatty acids or the few plant seeds that produce omega-3 fatty acids. Yet we all have this requirement. I mean, some of it does come from organ meats as well too, but you know, a lot of it's in the fat. Hey, that brings us to number four, doesn't it? Oh, yes, it does. Organ meats. So we we kind of already alluded to why they're in there, because once you catch an animal, you're not going to throw anything out. But I like to separate it out because at least in this country, you know, the organ meat that most people are familiar with is limited to liver. And uh, liver, though, is really, really nutritious. But we don't even think of organ meats as like potential food items. And they're not in our grocery stores. If you go to what is that? Island, New Zealand. Um, you go to the store there and alongside the meats, you see kidney and you see liver and you see um, sweet meats and, uh, and tripe. 
But um, in this country, you almost don't even see liver in a lot of stores anymore. And then if you go over to Asia and France, there's everything is on the menu. They've got like rooster, um, crow thingy, majiggies and uh, <laughs> ears, you know, all kinds of stuff. It just doesn't go to waste. And it shouldn't because each different organ has is sort of a body repository for different um, nutrients. So the more variety you get, the more variety you get of nutrition, and we need that variety. Excellent. So we have the fresh foods, we have the fermented foods, the meat on the bone, and the organ meats. And I know when um, you were uh, working with me, and we, we did a nice um, guest post about this on Mark's Daily Apple from you, um, but that was I was totally missing out on like two of the four pillars, thinking I was really eating really healthy and strict primal. And uh, with the organ meats, I, I went out and bought a bunch of liver and found out that I, I didn't really love the taste. Um, <laughs> so you got me taking the uh, desiccated liver pills, which was a nice um, stopgap. And then, you know, trying to just uh, embrace some um, foods that are so traditional and have such a great track record. But even the, um, the hardcore, really devoted uh, ancestral health people might be missing out on. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's just, uh, I like to think of it as, you know, not like, oh, you got to eat it, but as more of a culinary adventure. You know, if you have the opportunity to try something different, go for it. You know, you may, maybe you don't like it, but um, you got to, you don't know until you try, right? So, um, and to understand that it is something that your body would appreciate if you, if you did like it. And, and by the way, a little tip on how to like foods that you don't like, but you know you should like yeah. is, to eat them when you're really hungry, like after a good bout of exercise. That's when your body is much more shouting much more loudly about all the different nutrients that it would like you to give it. And so that you're more likely to start liking something at that point in time. And and by the way, it takes kids a long time when, you know, if anybody who's raised kids, um, which I actually haven't, but <laughs> I... I uh, You've seen the sick ones uh, I, I, plenty, yes. though. <laughs> I'm familiar with these entities. Um, and um, they, uh, it, it takes about the, an average of, you know, a dozen introductions on a little child to get them to actually recognize it and enjoy it and you know where they where they instead of sort of sticking it in their mouth and gumming it and then spitting it back out they'll actually keep on eating it you know after about 10 to 15 tries so don't have a whole lot of something new the first time <laughs> um, unless it smells really good I guess um, good tip. Thanks, Kate. So that was the four pillars of world cuisine from Deep Nutrition. Dr. Kate Shanahan from the Primal Advantage Program, which you can read all about and sign up on. I believe we have some, some vacancies for uh, open right away for consultations when you get all your work done. So check out Primal Advantage at primalblueprint.com. Thanks for being with us, and we look forward to future shows where we can get into some fun Q&A. So if you're listening and you have a question for Dr. Kate, Go to blog.primalblueprint.com, and there's a handy uh, speak pipe. It's a microphone tool. You can actually leave a voicemail question, or you can send an email in anytime with a written question to info at primalblueprint.com. This is your host, Brad Kearns. Thank you so much for listening to the Primal Blueprint podcast with Dr. Kate Shanahan of the Primal Advantage. Thanks, bum, Brad. Bum, 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 bum. <laughs>
Safeguard your health with the most comprehensive all-in-one nutritional supplement on the planet. Primal Nutrition's Damage Control Master Formula. Forget mixing and matching with multiple bottles of individual agents. Now you can just take a single packet of the most potent and optimally balanced multivitamin, multimineral, antioxidant formula available on the market. You'll enjoy complete immune system, cardiovascular, memory, nerve, bone, liver, and anti-stress support, and much more. With 51 research-proven ingredients, Damage Control Master Formula helps you combat oxidative damage in every cell and every system in your body and shore up any dietary shortcomings with complete protection. Order Damage Control Master Formula today at PrimalBlueprint.com and check out the incredible free shipping offer for our convenient and custom-designed auto-ship program.